0: Welcome to episode 41 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. I am your co-host, Mary, and tonight I am joined by my awesome co-host, Darren Weeks, who was just distracting me with a figure of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain on the screen.
1: Um, That's Tom Selleck, by the way.
0: (laughs) Anyway, welcome to episode 41 of the Civil War Breakfast Club. We are back after a week hiatus. And we took a week off because Darren was being the ultimate Civil War nerd, and he saw 14 different battlefields in a week. I was able to see a little bit of it, too, albeit virtually, but still, nonetheless, it was very, very good for those following along on social media. I'm sure you saw his pictures and stuff, and he had a really, really awesome time. And I mean, if you're not battlefielding without a sword and a cappy hat with a crescent moon on it, are you really battlefielding, Darren?
1: I'm happy to report I made it back from deep behind rebel lines. I made it back to the great white... New England, Great White North, as they say, and uh, made it back in one piece. So it was a great time. Saw a lot of a lot of good stuff. Met a lot of cool people. Some people who actually listen to the silly mm-hmm. little thing we do it is good to be back it was a long week but we saw a whole bunch of battlefields we saw a lot of undulations we saw a lot of rolling hills. monuments i saw, I saw rolling saw hills
0: of... at chancellorsville
1: that's what i saw on the screen i, I didn't see anything anyway i saw so howard, howard run you did see how it's so, you know you did see howard run yeah definitely so it well, was strange not recording last week it, it was, was you know we did our, we, we did our live yeah. it was live on location from Steinwar avenue which is really really cool but overall, it was, it was a good time. It was, it was fun. It's good to be back, though. It's good to get recording again, like get back on schedule again. But yeah, it's a nice place. And we've been down to Virginia and West Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania and everywhere else. It's a lot of cool stuff to see down there. A lot Definitely. of times I've seen for, seen for the very first time, which is yeah. really, really cool. And I got to walk across Bull Run.
0: Yep, that's awesome. It was really cool, too, after recording the episodes, like about Chancellorsville and about Fredericksburg and about Second Manassas, which we've all covered in this podcast. But then, you know, we're going to you went to Bristol Station, which we're going to be doing an episode about that this year. We're also going to be doing an episode about First Bull Run in July. So that's pretty awesome. So, yeah, it's uh-huh. cool that you've seen all that stuff. We are now back at it. Episode 41, which I thought our episode 40 was a pretty way to bring in our 40th episode with our guest Eric talking about the Iron Brigade.
1: Yeah, he did a good job. It was always fun talking about him. He's a great dude. And, um, you know, we, we've talked about his book, Black Iron Mercy, many, many times. But the Iron Brigade is, you know, you you study it and you you know, you know him. But then when you really spend some really a lot of time getting into them, it makes you even more impressed at the stuff they yep. did. Because it's just hard to explain. It's just hard to explain. When you see the sites and you see the, the actual locations of what they did, it's quite something. It you know, is.
0: It absolutely. Yeah, it, it definitely is. But we are on to episode 41 now. So before we get into this episode, which we're calling The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, of The Civil War, which we'll explain a little bit more in a few minutes, what are you drinking tonight? And I'm asking you so that you don't say like short people first.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, fine. (laughs) I am drinking from Fourscore Brewery, Getty's Brow, which I was there last weekend. The, The Fourscore, which is a great place, and I'm drinking it out of my Joshua Chamberlain mug. Not to be confused with my Joshua Chamberlain figurine. Mm-hmm. But um, because Joshua Chamberlain is going to be somebody I'm going to be talking about tonight. Mm-hmm. What about
0: yourself? So I am drinking and wandering around the Lickbo as I do every day. I was trying to find a beer for tonight's podcast. And I found one called Number 16 IPA, which 16th Maine, which I'm sure you're going to be talking about tonight in this episode. And I don't have any mugs related to any of the people I'm going to be talking about. So I went with General Thomas, Chickamauga Rock. Because I am going to be talking a little bit about the Battle of Chickamauga tonight with a couple of the Rock guys I'm going
1: to be talking about. Rock Mill Springs, no question. <laughs> but so the good, the bad, and the ugly. What we mean by that is this. We're going to talk about some generals and some colonels. We're going to talk about some people. We've been talking a lot about battles lately. And we've been talking about a lot of different things. We're going to talk we always seem to talk about a quick little bio of certain people in these battles. We're going to dedicate this episode to talking specifically and exclusively about. Some people maybe get a little too much credit, maybe some people don't get enough credit, and some people who just have great stories, mostly off-the-field stories we're going to talk about tonight. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a little bit of fun with that.
0: Yeah, we are. And it's kind of like some of these people we're going to be talking about, I don't want to say they're under underdogs, but they are underappreciated in the Civil War. Maybe they don't get the credit that they deserve and they need to be more well known. And we're not doing it to like bring another person down or whatever and say that they suck. We're doing it to say like, yeah, there's these, there are these Civil War kind of rock stars or sacred cows, but there's other people out there too that deserve the credit as well for different reasons. And for some reason, they just don't get talked about. And we kind of wanted to bring some of those people to light as well.
1: Yeah. So we'll have some fun with that. I'm going to get started here Mm -hmm. and talk about someone who everyone knows a guy by the name of Judson Kilpatrick. <clears throat> now, Judson Kilpatrick, just the name alone invokes anger in some people.
0: <laughs> Get fuck
1: Kilpatrick! He has a reputation of being reckless. Talk about his in his nickname, "Kill Cavalry." He has a long nose, hazard look, long hair. You know, kind of like Howard Stern on a horse kind. Of. That's exactly that look, what he know? looks. He looks like Howard Stern. A little bit. He's the kind of guy who probably gets caught hanging around the DQ after hours. You're going to call the cops on. That's (laughs) exactly that's that's So that's where I recognized him from. But the irony is he's quite the ladies man, Mary. Oh, so he likes the bang barn. Does he? Oh, he was born in the Bang Bar. <laughs> well, he's gonna, putting we're, Earl we're, Van we're,
0: Dorn and AP Hill to shame.
1: <laughs> we're going to talk about this in a little while. We're going to talk in detail about old Judson. So born in New Jersey, saw, he was a very confident fellow. He saw himself as a future great. Thought about he was going to be governor, saw himself as a potential president someday. This is when he was younger. But you know what he is? He's sleazy. And he's an opportunist. And that's mm. what he is. U.S. Military Academy, class of 1861. You graduate right now, pretty much in the middle, 17 out of 45. This is the class that produced Custer. Who finished dead last at 45, Patty O'Rourke, who finished first in that class. He's second lieutenant of the artillery in the U.S. Army. So once the Civil War starts, he ends up being a captain of Company H of the Fifth New York Volunteers under the great Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts, Mary, in the Department of Virginia. He's going to train five months at Fortress Monroe before fighting. So he's going to get his training in. He's going to have a lot of backup experience. He's going to get his first taste of battle, the first element he's going to see is the Battle of Big Bethel. Now, this is June 10th, 1860. 61. It ends up being a complete disaster, like most of these battles end up being. He's fighting under uh, Brigadier General Ebenezer Pierce. He said basically sent to attack a rebel outpost at Big Bethel, which is near Newport, News, Virginia. Now Kilpatrick ends up being the first U.S. officer injured in the American Civil War. Okay, You know what happens to him? He gets shot in the butt. I was just going to say. He does. He literally rode back to camp on a mule with his ass bleeding. Oh, my God. OK, so there you go. And it's a perfect premonition of kind of what things that have come for him. Right. The thing about him. He later gives a different version. And this is the repeating thing about Kilpatrick is he loves talking to media. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the Paris Hilton of the Civil War. He cannot get enough of the media. He loves to talk to him. He gives him a total different version of that story. But and so what it does, it makes him kind of a household name in the Civil War. It's early. But everyone knows who Judson Kilpatrick is. After the battle, he gets sent on a recruiting mission because he's popular. He's going to be recruited by his boss, a guy named Abram Derry in the 5th New York Infantry. He's going to be basically sent with his cavalry guy named Colonel J. Mansfield Davies. So he's going to be be recruiting for the infantry, but he's going to get sent with a cavalry guy. They're just going to go off together. You know, they're going to go to Louise and they're going to get themselves some soldiers. What does uh, Kilpatrick end up doing? He ends up recruiting cavalry guys instead. So not infantry. Mm-hmm. So Derry finds out and he is pissed. He orders him back to Fortress Monroe because he wants him fired. So you know what he does? He orders him back. Instead of coming back, he goes, I'm sick. I can't come back. I'm taking a, I'm take, I'm taking a sick day. Oh, my God. And he doesn't come back. So Derry basically is going to ask the army, so we got to get rid of this freaking guy. He's The quote he uses is, we need to relieve us from what has become an embarrassment. So already he's got a reputation and he's showing himself as an opportunist because why? He wants to be in the cavalry. That's mm-hmm. the whole thing. What does the army do? They give it to him. So September 25th, 1861, Kilpatrick gets what he wants. He's going to be made a lieutenant colonel of the 2nd New York Cavalry. That's good. There you go. Get promoted up and you screw up. Sounds like he
0: works for the government.
1: Well, he did. (laughs) Or the DQ. The DQ. I don't know how that works. How do you think
0: I got management?
1: I don't know, actually. I was going to ask you about that how you did that because you're the only one who can make the blizzards upside down and it falls right out. It doesn't even stick in there. I don't know how you do that. Yeah, well. But, but so, so listen to this one. So Kilpatrick goes back to Washington to train his new troopers. He's going to train them. They're staying in camp. You know where he stays? At the freaking Willard. Oh, my God. He stays God. the Willard. And the reason why he stays at the Willard Hotel is because he wants to schmooze with the politicians to help further his career. And it gets even better. He's making side personal deals with sutlers. What he's doing is he's getting paid in gold, he's taking bribes from sutlers to get government contracts. I get the feeling this is not going to work out well for him. No. it's, it's <laughs> So this is this is kind of how he is, right? Fast forward to the spring of 1862, George McCollum begins that Peninsula Campaign. Yeah. So Kilpatrick's second year York Cavalry is placed under Irvin McDowell's first corps. There, what does he start doing? He starts quotation figures confiscating horses from local farmers, and he's selling them north for personal profit. So he's taking the horses and he's selling them oh for his God. own bank, right? <laughs> so he's stealing tobacco from farmers and selling them to his own troops, his own guys. That's who this guy is. Wow. Awesome. I right? bad. So, I mean, it's just, you just, you just got to laugh sometimes. Oh, yeah. This guy has no shame. May of 62, he got sent to Richmond to scout rebel troop movements. You know, he obviously went to the Goddard School of Mathematics as he screwed up the numbers. <laughs> he reports, Dr. and this is actually an important thing. He reports that there are 15,000 troops, Confederate troops, that have been sent to reinforce Stonewall Jackson. And that number is completely wrong. And so what it does, it forces McClellan to keep McDowell near Washington. It allows Jackson to escape the Shenandoah Valley. So we went back and talked about... um, About Kernstown, how he was able to go. This is why. Because Ah. he he screwed up the numbers. They make fun of McClellan with the numbers. This one is bad, you know. That is definitely
0: the Goddard School of Mathematics right there. Jesus, he's also been clearly talking to Pinkerton and using Pinkerton-style inflation there. (laughs) as well (laughs) definitely so
1: summer of 1862 he ends up of course with john pope's army of virginia because of course he does right so he's under rufus king's infantry of the iron brigade we just talked about he ends up under his tutelage he has some success and he's very very aggressive and that's the thing about kilpatrick that He's going to get that nickname here, but he's very aggressive. July 19th, 1862, he's going to attack Beaver Dam Station. He captures an unknown Re- Confederate captain by the name of John Mosby here. And no one knows who he is yet. He's just a captain. And so it's kind of funny that Kilpatrick bags Mosby. Mm-hmm. He has obviously escaping, yeah. know, getting out and parole and going back. But a couple days later, he attacks and burns the Hanover Junction Depot. At this point, he's working his troopers so hard and they're going full speed the whole time. This is when he gets that nickname, Kill Calvary. People think it's from Gettysburg. No, it's from here. Mm-hmm. It's, right, it's from Hanover Junction Houston Depot and from Beaver Dam Station. As we go a little bit forward to get to Second Manassas, Pope gets beat. He gets smoked. We talked about that. He's going to end up trying to cover Pope's withdrawal. So he has his guys charge full speed. He's going to stay in the back. So he's going to send his guys forward. And they're going to get basically smoked again. In the darkness, they're going to attack a rebel battery. And they're going to get absolutely blasted. He's going to catch a lot of shit for this. It's just a full, complete blunder on his part. And as it's, it's, it's funny because it's this kind of ties in all the episodes we've done. If you really think about it, mm-hmm. fast forward McClellan's back. This is after after Second Manassas now. Yeah. And this is when Kil Kilpatrick's corruption finally catches up with him. Mm-hmm. This is when he gets caught. He tries to sell two stolen mules. He gets two mules. He's sort to of try to sell them. A farmer who we assume his name is Karen. She complained to the manager, <laughs> and what? And so I deal
0: with Karens all the time at the DQ. Oh, yeah. So.
1: So the farmer complains to the U.S. provost and says, this guy's stealing my mules. So it opens up a complete investigation in the army. And all the stuff comes out now. All the horses and the tobacco and the settler all hits the fan all at one time. He gets locked up in the old Capitol prison in Washington for this. He spends three months in jail. He gets released in January of 1863. So think about this. So he's in jail for basically corruption against his own troops. Yep. against his own government. Also a so drunken get... spree. Drunken spree. So he gets out in January. So, what is what happens? They bring him back in command and put him under Hooker. Yeah. So, I mean, that's he's the perfect under... person for him to be
0: under, though, because Kilpatrick I mean... is saying, like, you know, the one thing I was reading about him was that, like, his camp, like, there was like prostitutes that frequented it. So, it sounds like he's the perfect <laughs> companion for Hooker
1: and Butterfield in the Triple X Corps. We're going to talk about the 30th Corps here in a few minutes, Mary. Good segue there. So <laughs> so he's under Joe Hooker. He's put in command of the 1st Brigade under Dave McBurchery Gregg. Run DMG, right? And this is under Stoneman's overall tour with George Stoneman's in charge at this point. He participates in the 1863 Stoneman's raid. It basically just made a big effort. They were just tearing up railroads, cutting telegraph lines, all this stuff. He gets to within two miles of Richmond and he captures a... This is Kirkpatrick now. He catches a whole bunch of rebels. He ends up being somehow a hero for this. It's, it's it's probably his greatest day. It just probably is. Mm-hmm. So he gets, he captures a bunch of prisoners. After the raid, Storming gets replaced by Alfred Pleasanton. This is when Lee begins to march into Pennsylvania for that second time. June 9th, 1863, just to follow the following Pennsylvania campaign, this mm-hmm. is the Battle of Brandy Station now, right? Pleasanton this surprises Jeb Stuart, and this is kind of when the Union cavalry kind of gets its. Got its teeth a little bit. Yeah, Kirkpatrick is going to cross Kelly Ford. So Kirkpatrick is going to be attacking Jeb from the south. He screws up because like many of these generals or these these colonels and all these guys, he attacks piecemeal just like Bragg does, all these other guys, just, you know, just like Rhodes at Gettysburg. It's all piecemeal. So he got his second New York and 10th New York completely cut up. And the quote was, they were sent floating like feathers in the wind. That was the quote that was used to describe what happened to these two regiments. Kilpatrick gets promoted for this, believe it or not, to brigadier general. It seems like the more he screws up, the more he goes up. So on 614, 1863, he gets his star. Now he's a brigadier general. It's funny because the the thing, the repeating theme with with, uh, Kilpatrick is it's like the harder he screws up, the higher he gets pushed up. And that's just the way it is for Mm -hmm. him. So Battle of Aldi in Virginia? He attacked a rebel troops outside of the town. And this is kind of interesting because he charges with the great first Massachusetts, Mary, which, Mm -hmm. you know, and the second New York. But he attacks without knowing the enemy numbers. He just goes full speed in. And they get ambushed and they take gigantic losses. When you're attacking a number, you don't know what the numbers are. Kilpatrick's, the quote he used after this, he says he felt like a ruined man. That's how he felt. He got pushed back. The whole point was to find out where Lee's army was as mm. they're heading into Pennsylvania. And he didn't get close. He got pushed back. He got smoked. So June 28th, Meade's gonna replace Hooker, and Kilpatrick is gonna take over the third division of cavalry. He'll get two brigades, one under Elon Farnsworth and the other under George Armstrong Custer, his old classmate from West Point. Everyone knows the Gettysburg story, so we're not gonna go too too much about that. But Gettysburg, he gets he ends up getting left with just that one brigade under Farnsworth because they're gonna take Mercury Griggs is gonna take Custer from him and he's gonna do that whole thing in East Cavalry Field. That that's how he gets separated from mm-hmm. from him. Yeah. So July 3rd, after Pickett's charge, day third of the battle, he's gonna get um involved at, this is after Pickett's charge. George Meade and Albert Pleasanton are going to order Kilpatrick to launch a counterattack against James Longstreet, just southwest of Big Round Top. Now, it's funny reading the quotes from this because it's it's like two girls arguing. Farnsworth says, I don't want to freaking do it. You out of your freaking mind? Kilpatrick... You know you know he basically calls him yellow. you call me yellow you know <laughs> back so, to the future Kilpatrick says if you are too afraid to go I will do it myself And Farnsworth is like he's like he you know he literally says take that back mm-hmm. he says that take that back I will lead the attack but you must take the responsibility. So he does. Kilpatrick says, fine, I will take the responsibility. Farnsworth's troops, historically, everybody knows, they march into the ambush. Farnsworth's going to be killed um, while his troops are frantically trying to escape. So it's a complete mess. And I think a lot of people, if they know one Kilpatrick story, that's the one they always seem to know. Yeah. But what they don't know is what happens after Gettysburg. So after Gettysburg, July 5th, Kilpatrick is going to be ordered to harass Lee's retreating wagons. Now, this is what we're going to talk about, the retreat down the road. We do Gettysburg because yep. we could talk about this forever. But he has some success, but he gets pushed back towards Boonesboro, Maryland, by Jeb Stewart. So fast forward about a week or so to July 13th. They, this is when they wait. You know, Meade gets credit. You know, gets hissed for waiting too long. Harry, he's four thousand men are the last ones to cross the Potomac at Williamsport, and this is when Colonel Kilpatrick is going to attack. He's going to attack four thousand guys. Guess how many guys he has to do this attack? Don't he's ask f- me math. He's got forty. <laughs> So Kilpatrick is going to take 40 guys to attack 4,000. And predictably, he gets hammered. This is the thing about Kilpatrick. Remember I mentioned before how much he loved the media? He does an interview with the New York Times claiming it was a great victory. What? So it gets published in the paper and, of course, on their Twitter page that the Army reads this and goes, what the hell? He gets called into the principal's office to explain this story. Like, what the hell are you talking about? You know what happens? He doesn't show up. When they ask her to show up yep. again. Nine months earlier, his wife had visited him in that old capital prison we talked about, right? Mm-hmm. She shows up with the newborn son they got while she visited him at the old capital prison. So he hooked up with the wife in jail. Oh my and now God. she got pregnant. So this nine months later, she shows up with the baby and it gets even better with this. So a couple of weeks later, August 15th, 1863, he gets to go back to camp again. So he's back in camp. He invites a teenage hooker named Annie Jones to stay with him in his tent for a while. Just stay with them, you know, just probably playing cards, yep. right? Yeah, I was just going to say
0: playing cards, hanging yeah. out. Playing of, cards. You know.
1: So Annie must have got sick of him. She dumps him for Custer, so Kilpatrick has Jones arrested as a spy, and she gets sent to the old Capitol prison. Oh my! Now, we God. don't know if not. We don't know if nine months later. We, we don't know. Okay, this is kind of how he is. October eighteen sixty three. Now we're at Bristow Station, where I just was. Yep. He gets. This is where he gets tricked by Jeb Stuart into attacking him. He gets. He basically gets put in between Jeb and Lee's approaching army, and he gets his ass kicked. Jeb called that the most complete defeat any cavalry suffered in the entire. War. He, just, he also hated Kilpatrick, so it's easy to say. Afterwards, Kilpatrick is going is to try to Richmond. This is when this, this is what's interesting, though. If anybody who's read the John Ransom book on Andersonville, he talks about rumors that Kilpatrick is coming. Kilp- mm-hmm. and what he means by that is this: Kilpatrick goes writes a letter directly to Lincoln and says, "I want to go to Belle Island in Libya, Richmond, and Richmond, and I want to free the prisoners." And Lincoln's like, "Oh, knock yourself out." But he doesn't tell Mead and he doesn't tell Pleasanton. He doesn't tell the Rosewoods clown. He tells nobody. And of course, they're all like, what? He just and so he does it. He has a little success. What what do you do when you're in the east and you screw up? They send you west, right? Yep. So west guess he where goes. he gets sent? He gets sent to the land of the misfit toys with Oliver Otis Howard, I yep. will be thy name. To be with Sherman. Yeah. So that's how he ends up out there. So there's a
0: OO <laughs> reference. And I didn't it do it. Oh my God, you were the one that mentioned OO before me. I know. I oh know. Oh my so God. Go. Here it so, happened, folks, here June the second, twenty twenty one.
1: So, so, November 28th, 1864, he's going to end up in a battle in Waynesboro, Georgia, where he's going to fight Joseph the War Child Wheeler. Yeah. He's going to end up in a battle. Now, Wheeler is going to attack Kilpatrick's camp at night. They're all going to be sleeping. Kilpatrick is going to come running out of his tent in his underwear with a black prostitute out of his camp. Oh. Okay. My God. <laughs> so. And so he's going to end up staying with Stur- Sherman for the rest of the war, I mean, the, rest of the, the rest of the March of the Carolina campaign. Along the way in the Carolinas, he ends up spending time in his tent with an Asian prostitute this time named Molly. Of course, she gets pregnant. how that works out, okay? Oh my and God. And so what happens after this? He gets promoted to major general and he gets to command troops in North Carolina. All right. So it just goes on and on. So once he gets his major general, so he's going right down the line, he decides he's gonna, you know, he's he's made it high enough. Now he's gonna go run for governor of New Jersey. So he's gonna run for governor of New Jersey, and of course he's gonna lose. But this is his original plan. He wanted to be famous and he was was learning it. He ends up being named the ambassador at Chile. He's on the way to Chile. What does he do? He meets a Married woman named Missus Williams. He gets to South America and he presents her around as his wife. He oh he tries. God. At some point, you know things must have got bad. He tries to dump her. He tries to literally ditch her, but it doesn't work out. It blows up wow. in his face. So it ends up being a gigantic scandal. By now, President U.S. Grant is the president. 1869. He finally fires him. So he's going to end up. He's going to end up dying of kidney disease in 18, 1881. Gee, I wonder he's, why. It's funny it is and he's buried in Arlington right near John Buford and right near Alonzo Cushing. Wow. So Arlington, you can,
0: do you, you mean um West Point?
1: I mean uh, West Point, I mean not Arlington, West Point, you're right. It's and so it's an interesting story with this guy. It like is. As you talk, but it, when you as you study him, you realize how much the story is, and how much it's like we this we can't handle this guy. Let's keep pushing him up, up, yeah. up, up, up. And it was finally U.S. Grant who said enough is enough. Even yeah. Sherman couldn't do it. Oh well, no, but
0: I mean, I've always you been know? somebody who I mean, I kind of like Kilpatrick because he's a he's a bit of a character, right? But I think he gets a lot of shit that he doesn't deserve, like for Gettysburg, right? Like Farnsworth is it's horrible what happened to Farnsworth, but should Kilpatrick shoulder all of that? But the one thing, you know, Sherman takes a lot of shit for having Kilpatrick as his cavalry on on the March to the Sea. And the one thing that Sherman said was like, I I know he's reckless. I know he's a bit of an idiot, but that's what I need for my cavalry, which is the exact Mm -hmm. opposite to what he needed for his wing commanders. His wing commanders, Howard and Slocum, Howard, hell be thy name, (laughs) there I said it, Um, Wow, I can't believe that you made the OO reference before me, Weeks. Like, this is fucking crazy. I know. It's, it's,
1: like, it's my God, June 2nd, Robin.
0: 2021, it, like, it happened. I can't believe like that. Too Everybody... Too much Too much. Sun People in have to do two shots know. for that one. When Darren <laughs> makes the OO reference, they have to do two shots. His wing commanders had to be, like, very much... He knew they would follow orders. They wouldn't do anything, you know, that... They, they weren't going to be, like, basically a black Jack Logan or a hooker where they were going to be like, ah, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go a little bit crazy. Whereas Kilpatrick was more like that. But I think that's what Sherman needed in his cavalry. And I actually have a story that I'm going to tell with one of my guys that is going to tie into that, that Sherman needed that level of aggression and a person that could kind of think like, you know, basically like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this and it's going to work kind of thing. One of the stories I'm going to tell is is related to that.
1: Well, I I think what what are you looking for in a cavalry guy? You're looking for a guy who's aggressive and audacious, but his problem is that he was reckless. And it's one thing to to be aggressive or really, something to be a little bit reckless. And they Killed Calvary nickname is, is, is an interesting one, but he certainly lived the lifestyle of a cavalier. There's no question.
0: Oh, no kidding. It w- which you was know? the exact opposite to how Jeb Stewart was, right? Like you think Jeb Stewart would be living that kind of life, but Jeb Stewart is a guy that like, I don't think he drank or, or anything like that. And he was very, very religious. Um, I know, I think he and all of Rodas Howard were actually friends and connected kind of over that religious thing. But I think Jeb was kind of tame compared to kill
1: patrick i think a lot of people are okay. well to i don't Kilpatrick, know one of the guys his... i'm
0: gonna be talking about he's uh it's not this like you know a little bit different from kill patrick but oh, he's got quite the backstory
1: as well definitely definitely so he was someone who would definitely be considered one of the one of the probably badly ugly but i think he's it's it's an interesting study because you think of him you think of him as the farnsworth story yeah you think of him as the retreat story but he had he had a very colorful experience all the way through mm-hmm. and he's like many of these people we've talked about and you know, we've hinted that you know grant might have wanted a future in politics and so and so this guy made it very clear he did yeah. and was fighting every step along the way was done for that which must um, have
0: bothered the shit out of sherman because sherman hated the press you know, so he probably was like taking a risk with making Kilpatrick into the his cavalry guy in the march to sea because he thought Jesus, this guy could could talk to the press, but clearly the the benefits of having Kilpatrick as your cavalry guy outweighed the uh the, the cons I liked like the aggressiveness, no question about that yeah, he definitely did it in a cavalry guy, not necessarily in the wing commanders, but in the cavalry, definitely he needed Correct. that aggression. that was a good one. Yeah, even to start fella. us off. No yeah. Well, mine is gonna be really tame um, <laughs> compared to Kilpatrick.
1: It's Oliver Otis Howard.
0: Shockingly, no. I know. I need to announce to the people listening, no, Oliver Otis Howard was not one of my picks tonight at all. Decided not to go that route. But my pick is I'm gonna start off. My first one is Nathan Kimball um he's born 1822 in fredericksburg indiana we have talked about him before he makes an appearance in our kernstown episode and he's the only one one of the only ones in the union army that gets the credit for pantsing stonewall and lee
1: that's rare rare area rare. And, and you know he's, one. he's kind
0: of a guy that like you mentioned nathan kimball and people are like who you know he's just not as well known and i think he's one that i mean he doesn't have the colorful life that kilpatrick has at all He's kind of boring compared to that, but he's not a West Point graduate. And that's the interesting thing about the three guys I picked to talk about. They're not West Point graduates. And he's educated in Indiana at what is now DePauw University. I probably butchered that name. Kimball eventually becomes a doctor and he has practices in Salem and Livonia. He fights in the Mexican-American War. He volunteers, raises a company from Livonia He's elected captain, and he's part of the Second Indiana, and he's distinguished at the Battle of Buena Vista. Uh, The Second Indiana overall, they flee in disorder, but he is credited with rallying his own men. And this is a pattern of his that will be seen throughout the Civil War, that he's able to rally his men. In 1847, he returns to Indiana to his medical practice. Again, clearly he's not going to the bang barn like Kilpatrick was, or like one of the guys I'm going to be talking about did. 1861, outbreak of the Civil War. Kimball volunteers and raises a company... Company of Infantry, so he's got the 14th Indiana. It's so over a thousand men. He fights at the Battle of Cheat Mountain, which is September 12th to 15th in 1861, and this is the first battle he's going to fight it. And this is where he defeats Lee. And this is the first time that General Lee he's going to be leading troops into combat. Poor com- communication led to a pretty shitty attack to the point where it really wasn't even launched. But the rebels get a little bit scared when they see Kimball because he makes it seem like he's got a lot more men than what he he does. He and his men are pretty damn aggressive out there. Because of that, they're like, fuck this. And they just vacate the dance floor. And he manages to to pants Lee in that situation. Now, I know some might come back and say, well, Lee really didn't have a great day. But let's give Kimball the victory on this one. I think he, you know, he's a very, he proved to be very, very aggressive. Kernstown, our episode, give it a listen. He beats Jackson. He's only in command because James Shields, as we discussed in that episode, is wounded. Kimball counterattacks Jackson, and we all know what happens to Jackson at Kernstown. It's not his greatest day. Sorry, Jackson fan club. It's just no, not. That,
1: well, That song, You Had a Bad Day, was written about that we talked
0: about. <laughs> I thought it was written about the Iron Brigade.
1: Well, that was, that was the, re, the redo. That the was redo. The, <laughs> the one that, that I like sing? The, kind of like the Friends remake. When know? I
0: do the cover of, yeah.
1: Oh my goodness gracious, the poor poor children. (laughs)
0: Call me me, me. (laughs) maybe. Kimball's going to go on to, um, he's going to cover Pope's retreat after second bull run. At Antietam, he is commanding the first brigade of William H. H. French's third division in the second corps. He throws an assault at the Sunken Road where he's going to lose over 600 men. But his command here becomes known as the Gibraltar Brigade. That's because of how well they withstand enemy fire. And it's really worth it just to go off on a little bit of a tangent and mention the Gibraltar Brigade here. They don't get mentioned very much, but they are fighting at Gettysburg. They will counterattack the Confederates from North Carolina and the Louisiana Tigers at Cemetery Hill. And they also... and they also repulse the Confederates during Pickett's Charge. They're made up of the 4th Ohio, the 8th Ohio, the 14th Indiana, and the 7th West Virginia. We're not going to hold Ohio against these guys because they're clearly badasses and they've, you know, learned to be that way under Nathan Kimball. Kimball is going to be at Mar- Fredericksburg. He's going to be in the assault at Mary's Heights. And this is where he is wounded. So he gets taken out for a while. So he spends the winter, spring, 1863 recovering, but like Kilpatrick... He's going to go west. So he ends up in the west, and he's going to be involved in Vicksburg, but doesn't see much action there. And he's eventually ordered to Arkansas, where he's part of the Department of Arkansas. And he's on detached duty under Sherman until May 1864. And the two of them actually become quite good friends. So he's given a command in the Fourth Corps at the beginning of the Atlanta campaign. IV is Fourth Corps. It better be fucking Fourth Corps, is it? Uh Okay, good. (laughs) I was just having a moment where
1: I'm like, shit. Well, you why? You can't figure out that one of all the numbers. I just of can't. Course, you, you know the you know the thirtieth, obviously. I triple. Of course, obviously. I know the triple X core. Um, well, but you know you always ask that question
0: because I'm I'm slightly dyslexic, so well, why wa- wouldn't you? Because uh, okay. I have it typed on my notes, and I want to make sure I'm not like reading it wrong and mixing up the letters.
1: Okay, we'll just <laughs> edit that right out. <laughs>
0: um anyway that so he's at the fourth court at the beginning of the atlanta campaign he's involved in the battle of peachtree creek and he becomes a division commander after this he briefly goes back to indiana because the gov- governor wants him there to help suppress the knights of the golden circle which allegedly john wilkes booth may or may not have been involved in but Probably not, right? I we'll, can't yeah, tell you. We'll, we'll never know. will never know. Um, but the other thing that Kimball is involved in is the battles of Franklin and Nashville as well. So he's pretty well in it until nearly the end of the war. At Franklin, he's um, part of um, when Bate attacks at Franklin, he's attacking Kimball. So Kimball is right there you know, kind of in the thick of it. He witnesses all the horrors that happen at Franklin. Um, February 1st, 1864, he gets a brevet promotion to Major General, and he's mustered out of the army at the end of the war. In Indiana, after the war, he's the first state commander of the Grand Army of the Republic. He serves as state treasurer in 1867. In 1869, and I found this little factoid for you, Darren, Uh what do you think he does? I don't know. He joins the Freemasons Lodge in Mount Pleasant, Indiana. Oh, my God. God, <laughs> I actually did know that. Did you know that? Well, okay, I figured you did, but I wanted to mention the Masons because all oh, the Masons.
1: All the secrets I just can't tell you.
0: <laughs> he serves in the Indiana House of, Rep- of Representatives in 1873. Well, Grant appoints him as Surveyor General for Utah Territory in 1873 as well, and he holds this post until 1878. And Rutherford B. Hayes will um, appoint him as Postmaster of Ogden, Utah and that's where he's going to pass away and he is buried in Ogden, Utah. And one Ooh. of the other guys I'm going to talk about is also buried in Ogden, Utah. So I in. I didn't wow. know there were, I didn't know the connections existed between these guys when I when I picked when I picked them, you know, I picked Kimball just because I enjoyed researching him when when, what we did about Kernstown. And I was like, wow, nobody knows about this guy. And he's had a lot of successes. He's really, he's quite aggressive. He's at some of the, you know, the more horrific battles in the Civil War. Like you think about it, this is a guy that, you know, not only is he at Fredericksburg at Mary's Heights, which is he's, you know, he's doing the charge. He's been, you know, trying to get to the Heights, but he's on the other side of it at Franklin watching those guys make a similar charge and you got to wonder what is he thinking like he's he's
1: thinking thinking i need to get to utah
0: (laughs) fuck utah i would not god that's got oregon trail written all over it salt
1: lake city sounds awesome
0: you've died of dysentery
1: no thank you (laughs) (laughs) you know what though is? it's funny though because it's like he he's a classic guy like so many of these guys who do a lot of great things and not a lot of people study him not a lot of people know about him i mean you you can talk about Nathan Kimmel all you want. You go to some of the real you know Civil War ner- nerderies like we hang around in, right? People are going to know who he is. Mm. I bet you the average high school history teacher doesn't even know who he is. And he's the only guy to defeat Lee and Jackson in the Civil yep. War. And he, for whatever reason, doesn't. seem there's a lot. And we'll be talking some more. Just th- the th- 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 rest, and we'll get done here. But it just seems like a lot of these guys, and he's he's one that a lot of people should know, just mm-hmm. overall history for just what he did. He was in all all the wrong places at all the wrong times. yeah You know, and he survives it, and he did a lot of good things. Sunken road but... at
0: Antietam, Mary's Heights. You know, he's at Franklin as well. Like as bait is making that assault on around five o'clock on November the 30th, like he's there and he's witnessing it all. And he's, you know, said to be quite aggressive, yeah. but yeah, like you said, you know, like in civil war nerds probably know his name, but does the average person, should the average person know his name? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think he's, he's like anybody else worth remembering.
1: The guy I'm going to talk about next is someone who's very similar, but, yeah. but I think it's a, it's a situation where it's not like these people didn't really do anything right now. You know, there are a lot of, you know, we, we talk about calling call this episode, the sacred cows, right and talk about some of the big fish that stonewalls the world and in mm-hmm. those people and, and just talk about maybe how what they did was was great but for whatever reason they get a lot of credit for what these other guys did and he's a good one and he is and he's someone who i think a lot of people should study mm-hmm. now the
0: next two that you're going to talk about
1: well i mean fair warning binky alert time okay yeah because i am going to talk about my favorite general my favorite general uh, actually Colonel rather. I should been that way too much my very general. But I'm going to talk about the great Charles Tilden. And I love this guy because he's my favorite. He's, oh, you've he, turned me into he, being a Team Tilden right? girl. He is proof that the number 16 is greater than number 20. Mm-hmm. He really, really is. So real quick, talk about him. And uh, this, this one's not as long as the other one. But he's from Castine, Maine. Like I said, not a lot of people know about him. Most of what's known about him comes from an Abner Small diary, The Road to Richmond. It's one of the, mm-hmm. There's very little written about him. And it astounds me that there isn't. He lists in May of 1861, ends up with the second Maine Volunteers. He's quickly promoted to captain. He gets discharged almost immediately in 1862, but he ultimately ends up going with the 16th. Now, he is someone who is heavily in the state of Maine and elsewhere. He's heavily overshadowed by another guy from Maine, some Josh guy, right? who committed the 20th
0: not howard it's,
1: no 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 how are you yeah, him so but i think i think well tilden's effort at, Gettys- at gettysburg is just as if not more important than what chamberlain did on round top mm-hmm. we'll, we'll talk about that so tilden is born to the son of a rich fisherman in castine maine miss castine maine married just in case you haven't been it's like big timber area it's all woods it's where Maine Maritime Academy is now. That area, not that you really know, but when was in Maine. Actually,
0: honestly, oddly enough, I think I've been there. Oh, okay. I toured around Maine when I was around 16
1: with my family, and we went to okay. all these little towns. And You know where he went to college? You know where Tilda went to school? Bowdoin. He went to Bowdoin. He, to he was, said he was not a scholar by habit nor mind. He was actually voted most likely to be a manager at the Dairy Queen. That's how bad <laughs> his grades were, right? I would have hired him. Oh, yeah, sure. He was not interested in anything academic, but he was interested in military history. Loved the military history. Okay, I can relate. But, but you know, but going back, eighteen fifty-seven, his family gets ruined. Remember, I mean, he was from a rich fisherman family. Yeah, eighteen fifty-seven. There's that global economic pandemic, um, a panic rather, it's a pandemic. jeez, that ruined his father's business. What happened was, the cell. Um, there was a ship called the uh, the SS Central America that was carrying thirty thousand pounds of gold. To U.S. banks in 1857 September, of course, it sinks and they lose all the gold. And a lot of banks go out of business. A lot of businesses go out of business. Thousands lose their jobs. And what makes it worse is the telegraph had been recently invented, so the story spread around the country, and it end up as a mass panic, a big mass sell off, and so ends up being a real economic crisis. So around this time, Tilden's going to become a lieutenant of the Castine Light Artillery. And very patriotic fellow he is, as, as are many people in Maine, actually. And they're pissed off at the secession talk. They don't want to hear it. They're done. Um, Tilden says, we shall vol- have volunteers in our company in case of war. The thing about him, though, is he there's nothing really written of how he felt about slavery mm-hmm. one way or the other. He just didn't seem to give a shit. I will say, though, his family benefited heavily from slavery his family sold a lot of fish to the south because fish was cheap food for the plantations that feed yeah. their slaves mm-hmm. so they benefited personally from it but there's nothing one way or the other he's ever written about slavery but i don't think he fought for or did you think he cared for either way that castine light art infantry ends up joining the bangor regiment in 1861 where they ultimately end up fighting a bull run their job that was to retrieve the fallen soldiers who were shot by sharpshooters their guys were to run out and get them. That was their job, right? So that sucks, but that's what they did. Tilden, the thing about him is, they said he, you know, he could he could fight, he could lead, and, and he was just that guy. He he could kind of do everything. Um, after Bull Run, he goes back to Maine. And he gets to raise his own regiment. He raised the Sixteenth Maine, and they call it the Blanket Brigade, not the Iron Brigade, not the Irish Brigade, the Blanket Brigade. How about it's Blanky a mock- Brigade? Blanky. Well, it's a mockery because most of the people they recruit are poor impoverished.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and impoverished, and they said, you know, probably was a blanket they call the Blanket Brigade. So they get mustered in at August 14th, 1862. They end up fighting in all the superstar places, Mary. They end up going to South Mountain, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville. And they arrive in Gettysburg, which is where Tilden really gets his reputation. So Battle of Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, Mary, you may have heard of it, July 1st. He's part of the First Corps in the Second Division under the great John Cleveland Robinson, who is Abner Small most famously says in his diary, in a much bearded army, he's the man i ever saw which is a great quote he is going to find himself under gabriel paul's brigade uh, gabriel paul's st louis guy they had fought robert rhodes division now if you look back on, the, on july 1st robert rhodes had a perfect platform to attack the first corps but he leroy Jenkins it and goes runs right out mm-hmm. and screws the whole thing up because he fights piecemeal as well so it ends up being complete route when the rebel onslaught becomes too strong Robinson basically says, "Let's get the hell out of here." He needs one regiment to stay back and cover their retreat. So, of course, ends up being the 16th Maine, and they know they're going to be sacrificed. So he, he has to. He, they're going to basically set up a salient right with you know where that um, that bird nest monument is. Yep. Right near the yep. Right there, with the Mummoxburg, That That's where they're going to be. Yep. So they're going to set up right there. Robinson's going to tell them to hold that position at all costs. He's going to set that up. They're going to have 275 men. And they'll be going up against brigades from Stephen Ramser and Julius Daniels and George Dole's and Edward O'Neill and what's left of Iverson. There's gonna be a whole bunch coming at them from all the directions. Holding out really, really well. They said it was a tiny blue ship in a sea of gray. That's what they called it. So just imagine that you're one of these guys. So after 20 minutes, Tilden says enough is enough. He's just get the hell out of here. Men, in, they're they're in a full gallop. I mean that. They're not trying to, this is an orderly retreat. They're running because they're running for their lives. But the guys, they don't want to lose their flags, right? And it's actually a really cool story. Yeah. So Tilden orders the guys to tear up the flags into little pieces and stick them in their haversacks, stick them in their pants, stick them in their shirts, because they don't want to lose their colors the U.S. flag and the 16th Maine flag. And most 16th Maine guys who lived would hold on to these pieces for the rest of their lives. It was their, their greatest treasure. Out of the 275. Only 38 make it back to Cemetery Hill. That's 81% casualties versus the 30% casualties on Little Round Top by the 20th. Just saying. Okay. Most of them are captured. 159 gets captured, including Tilden. They get caught right where that Pizza Hut is. Seriously. We don't know if they got stuck in the line. We don't know if there was what the, a bunch of Cub Scouts in line, screwed the whole thing up. But that's what them got caught right there. Yeah. Right? And it's a great story where they tell Tilden to give up the sword. He says, go screw. He sticks it in the ground and snaps it in half. That's how he was. He gets taken to Richmond. and sent to the Libby Prison. He's going to escape. He's gonna take off, they dig a tunnel, he gets the hell out of there. He goes back to his regiment. A year later, he's fighting at the Battle of Petersburg, gets captured again. While they're taking him to the back, he escapes. He finds a he finds a neighbor, ironically, from Castine named Edward Davies. Let's get the hell out of here. Okay, like, yeah, let's go. So they end up, they end up escaping. And what's interesting about the 16th is those 38 survivors from the 16th Maine, they end up having to join the 20th the next day. And they end up fighting with Chamberlain at Little Round wow. top. So you think you think about that, they go through this. Hell. Now, they were fighting for three hours before they were told to sacrifice. Yeah. Then they have to sacrifice. Then they run. They make it back, and they go, you got to go to Round Top now. Now, they didn't know what the hell was going to happen at Round Top, but it's ironic how it works out. Tilden, after the war, he kind of fades off into obscurity. And this is where he and Chamberlain go in two different directions, yeah. right? Tilden ends up being a merchant back in Maine. He gets brevetted a general in 1865. He says he's for faithful and meritorious service during the war. Now, despite all this, everything he does, you know what he does? not guess he does not get a medal of honor he never gets one wow they gave out 1522 during the american civil war and tilden never got one it was interesting about that battle too was the official battle report by george Meade does not mention anything about them in his battle report and it's really sad though because it's kind of like the forgotten regiment all the stuff they do they end up doing you know for patriotism for saving their other guys and they kind of just get forgotten about. They don't end up in the movies. They don't end up in the mm-hmm. books. I think that's a big part of it. And if yeah. you go up to Maine, if you go up to Maine, people know who Tilden is, but he's not as popular as Chamberlain. Well,
0: is. Chamberlain, like Chamberlain, and not to downplay what Chamberlain's doing, and this is not meant to be an insult at all, but there's a little bit of Civil War pop culture that comes into pop this. That's <laughs> true. <Just, yeah. laughs> I mean, Chamberlain does amazing things at Little Round Top, but you know, when you look at somebody like Charles Tilden, like why are they not talked about more? You know, like he he deserves that as much as Chamberlain does. He
1: does. If you study that part, like, I mean, we've said before, how we're both day one junkies on this. Mm-hmm. If you study that first day, you got to you, you cannot help but come away with that having such an appreciation. You got that whole. When I remember when I first learned about him, I was like, who the hell is this guy? Why yep. have I never heard of him before? Because you hear about all these guys, you hear about the Iron Brigade, you hear about all these other fellows yep. and these guys, with all, all these hard things they do. But Tilden is kind of like that redheaded stepchild just doesn't get the credit. Maybe it's because he got captured and he disappears for a while and he doesn't, you know, he just kind of fades off.
0: But it could also be to, to um, and you and I were discussing this offline, it's to do with how they promote themselves, the self-promotion, if they're into the media. You know, you mm-hmm. look at somebody like Jeb Stewart, who is constantly in the media, you know, Calvary guy. And then you look at somebody like mm-hmm. Buford, who was not into self-promotion. And because of that, Buford, it took him a while to get the position that he wanted to in the Army of the Potomac and the Calvary, right? So I think mm-hmm. Tilden, I wonder if he was much the same way. You know, you have somebody like Chamberlain, who's writing after the war, you know, very much... Okay, Chamberlain loved himself some Chamberlain. Mm-hmm. There I said it. He mm-hmm. did. He did. Send that
1: email, right. info. And yes, absolutely. if you have a problem but, with that. But, 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 but he, he's it, writing you, about himself, you know. Well, you're he right. Tild- Tilden never writes a book. Yeah. Good luck finding a book on Tilden. There's a couple of books that reference him, but there's nothing about him. He didn't write anything post-war. He didn't do anything. He just basically faded off. He did his duty. He went back to live the rest of his life in obscurity. And he was he was okay with it. And, He's somebody. If you want to talk, you know how Alonzo Cushing just got the Medal of Honor. Tilden should be the guy to get the next one. They uh, sure
0: I I do agree, and yeah, like I'm I'm not trying to like consult Chamberlain by saying he liked himself from Chamberlain, but I he did though. He. He did. And it's, you know, that's one reason why he's so well known that in the, you know, the movie Gettysburg, the book, the killer angels, not downplaying his role at Little Round Top at all. But you know, somebody like Tilden needs to, you know, Chamberlain is is way up high in figures from the Civil War. Tilden deserves to be right up there with him. So we're not demoting Chamberlain in that we just want, you know, I'm very much team Tilden. We just want to see Team Tilden up there and getting the recognition that, that he deserves in this.
1: And Chamberlain does a lot of great things. There's no question. Absolutely. And Like like we were saying on the Twitter this morning, you, you can talk about Tilden without without feeling like you're degrading Chamberlain. Exactly. And for some reason, it's not one or the other. Now, Joshua does a lot of great things, but he does. He's a learned guy. He can write. He can read. Yep. He promotes himself, and that's a big part about it. He, he goes on. We'll talk about him here in a second, but he goes on to some a lot of post-war things he does but he's somebody who I think history knows because he wanted history to know him.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And that is actually a great way, a great segue into then to you talking about him right now.
1: Well, well you know, he's main guy, obviously he's from Brewer, which is a cool place to go. If you go there, there's a mini little round top. You can visit from the statue and the rocks and everything. It's really, really cool. He's interesting because he didn't want, I mean, he didn't want to be in the military. His mother wanted him to be a preacher. His father wanted him to be in the military. He didn't want to either. He goes to Bowdoin, he said he's ancient Greek. A lot of fun, by the way. I was his actually favorite.
0: supposed to study that when I was uh, going to do my master's in classical studies.
1: You took that math instead. That was. That was problem, I did, right?
0: yeah. We saw how that worked out. Manager, oh, yeah. at dairy queen for the win.
1: But his favorite professor is a guy named Calvin Stowe. Okay, Calvin Stowe's wife, Harriet Beecher. Just wrote a book called Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so she was living in Maine at the time. So he used to go and hear her read these chapters from this book. So Harriet Beecher Stowe was up in, in Maine and voted. He was a great student. There's no question about it. Spoke nine languages fluently, including Canadian, stuttering, the whole deal, right? <laughs> He spoke that, but he
0: he had to, um, to be able to order at the DQ because they're so close to the Canadian border.
1: He did, he did. But he, he graduates around eighteen fifty two, right around there. But you know, I mentioned the stuttering. He at the time of his graduation, he has this weird thing happen to him where he kind of like has this speech impe- impediment thing hit him all of a sudden. I was anxiety or nerves or right. whatever. But um, he had a real tough time dealing with it as he got older. We had a real, you know, speech that he gives in Gettysburg the with, with, um, in the movie with um, know the movie whether he does it or not, who knows, but he had a real tough time speaking for whatever reason. So he becomes a professor of rhetoric in modern languages at Bowdoin in 1861. And the war starts and everybody knows his story. You know he applies for a two-year sabbatical in Europe to study. They give they give it to him, and then he quickly enlists. Doesn't tell his family or the Bowdoin administration he's going to go join the army. He does tell his brother Thomas, his brother John, who ends up going with him in the, in the, the war. But he knows Thomas, but, but everybody knows John. He's made lieutenant colonel the twentieth Maine on 8, 8, 9, uh, 1862 under Adelbert Ames. He's, he's got some connections to to Howard here a little while, Mary. Mm-hmm. You know? But he's a, he's a learned guy, like we said before, who can write, you know, he takes great notes in his diary he'll use going forward. In Fredericksburg, you know, his, his, the regiment goes off to attack Mary's Heights. He has, he writes a very vivid description of the night they spent on Mary's Heights in the colds, where they're using the, the dead bodies as shields. And he talks about God. the bullets body against the dead I bodies. I remember
0: reading about that in, in one of the Shara's books, and it just was like, it made me so uncomfortable. And then I have actually at my desk at work. I have a picture by Mort Kuntzler from one of my calendars of that of them fighting on Mary's Heights, and it just like every time I look at it, I'm like I can remember that like him shielding himself with the
1: bodies. I'm like, oh mm-hmm. god, and it's just a vicious, vicious story. Yeah. They, obviously he survives that. Most of the 20th misses Chancellorsville because they get smallpox. They just get sick and they, they don't participate in that that's one. Pleasant. Adele Bart Ames gets promoted to Brigadier General under Francis Barlow in the 11th Corps. Um, Francis Channing I can't, Barlow. I can't remember who his coast corps commander was. I can't I seem to remember that who that guy was Oliver
0: Otis Howard Howell would be the oh, name. Everybody that's take right, a drink.
1: That's right. So so July 2nd, you know, we're gonna talk about the whole story. Gettysburg here, but July 2nd, he gets placed in that far union left flank, a little round top. And he's told to hold the line at all costs. He's going to fight against William C. Oates from Pike County, Alabama, from the 15th, Alabama. And the 15th is going to do those flanking moves, try to get around, get around. And Chamberlain refuses the line. The point where the, the lines connect is really where that monument is, allegedly now the 20th Maine. Yeah. But this, everybody knows the story. The ambulance is running low. The story is Chamberlain tells them to do a bayonet charge. And this is where the popular media thing, and we talk about the fog of war and Abra yeah. Small and not know what's going on. And this this is the great debate with Chamberlain, yeah. was did he call the order? Ellis Spear, who was one of his guys from mm-hmm. Bowdoin, with him in, in the thing, says he never heard the order. Chamberlain says he gave him. He ordered a bayonet charge. Spear says he didn't hear it. A lot of the guys they didn't hear it. Now that doesn't mean it didn't happen because it's so loud. Right. Well, how many
0: times has that happened in the Civil War, well, though?
1: Well, Spear basically says I saw everyone running on the hill. And I just chased them. I went yeah. with them. They chased them down the hill. The story is obviously immortalized in, in Michael Shaara's book in the yeah. movie. It's not to say it didn't happen, but but it's debated, and that's just one of those things. It probably did happen. Realistically, it did. Yeah. But a lot. But a lot of the guys, I didn't hear it. So. Who knows, right? He's called the Lion of Little Round Top. He, gets, he he does get the Medal of Honor, unlike Tilden. You know, he gets promoted to Brigadier General, to bridge command, I mean, uh, before Petersburg, his 1st Brigade of the 5th Corps. This is where he gets that injury which is kind of a tough one if you're a guy to, to read, right? Yeah. So June June 18th, 1864, he gets shot through the hip. Hip injuries at that point, for the most part, were fatal. They just weren't, yeah. right? It goes through his hip and gets lodged, like through his right hip, goes right through the middle and lodges in his left. And it slices his urethra on the way through, which sucks, okay? They have to get the bullet out. It, the, it's too far to use a regular, one of those little things. So they to use a ramrod or rifle, and they slide it all the way in. To find the bullet, right? They get the bullet out. They, they have to basically connect his urethra back together again with the tube. And, you know, it just, it, it's it's pretty bad, actually.
0: I am uncomfortable as a female right? hearing that. And so
1: it's reported in the main papers he was killed in battle. Yeah. Most people thought he was killed. And there's that great story with it when he was hit. And this one is confirmed, where he grabbed his sword and yeah. stuck it in the ground and prop himself up as he's waving the guys forward. And that's a pretty cool visual right there. It is. I can but, see him um, doing that. I can see you know, Jeff Daniels.
0: I'm picturing oh,
1: yeah. Jeff Daniels. So, so what happens is Governor K. Warren, he goes to U.S. Grant and says, Chamberlain's fucked up. I, you know, we're going to do something. So U.S. Grant thinks he's going to die. Mm-hmm. So he promotes him on site to Brigadier General, gives him the title. Because he thinks, I mean, he probably deserved it, but they thought he was going to yeah. die. Let's just get it to him right now. He gets it, but and he does survive it, though. That legend is going to continue all the way through. He's going to end up, obviously, after the war. He's you know he's going to survive the world, but he's he's going to basically continue on to end up being the governor of Maine, and he's going to do a lot of good things. Now, he's interesting is as he got older, he's going to die in 1914 allegedly from that injury he got at Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. His ure- his tube, whatever the hell it was? It, it was it was either leaking or getting into his kidneys, but it it was basically poisoning him, and it ultimately killed him. And he allegedly is the last Civil War injury to die yep. is Joshua Lars Chamberlain.
0: And the interesting thing is, is Tilden, he and Tilden die just a few weeks
1: apart. They do. They do. The thing about it, though, is the Chamberlain story is very much immortalized. Now, he is a guy who could write. He wrote a book called Passing of the Armies, mm-hmm. which oh, is he's a, fantastic a beautiful rate. writer. And it's hard to read. Really it makes your brain hurt, but he's very, very descriptive. And a lot of the soldiers who fought for him, including Spear, did not like that. They did not like the idea of watching their soldiers' friends, who they, a lot of them went to school with, be killed and having Chamberlain write about how romantic it was. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them never forgave him for that. And it was a big, big deal. He had his family at his house refer to him as, as General Chamberlain at the kitchen table. I mean, so it went to his head a little bit, maybe. But but that's what he was. You know what? Maybe he deserved it. You get to do it. But he dies in 1914. But what's interesting is it's still famous today. So in 2019, there's a song that was written called The Ballad of the 20th Maine. Yeah. And the state made it the official, official ballad. Oh. Um, I remember when this happened Too is in Maine. I mentioned they're very patriotic people. There were a lot of people in Congressman Maine who didn't want that song. Because it was it was too anti-Confederate. They wanted to be more balanced. Oh my God! And they would like they were like like Jesus! So there's that, there's a line that goes go straight to hell with your rebel yell. Yeah, we are mm-hmm. the boys from Maine. They wanted that out of it. Yeah, and they finally they finally got kept it in, and now it's, it's but it's but it's funny how um they thought it was basically too too pro-Union. They thought it was going to cause too many problems. But that's Chamberlain. I mean that that's that's what that, what that basically is. You know he he's, he ends up being president of Bowdoin College, but he does. You know what's what's it? What's interesting though is we, we we talk about how he goes to Appomattox, right? Yeah. There's that great story about him. I don't have notes on this. Just popped my head now, where he would ride around. He had a Bible and he had a picture and a frame of Fanny that he kept in his left pocket. Yeah. And there's that there's that story where he got shot there. Yeah. And all the soldiers saw him get shot in the chest and it basically nothing. They were like, whoa. Yeah. And he ends, he ends up surviving it. He's gonna be wounded six times yeah. in this battle. I mean, so he, people talk about like, like round top and all this, but he does a lot more than that. Oh, he does. Um, he absolutely he do,
0: yeah. he's he's more than
1: just the round tops. Oh, yes. So you know, he's at Appomattox. So he's sitting in his tent one day, and who comes stumbling into his tent but John Gordon,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: Confederate, yep. and says, Hey, um, Lee's gonna to to be surrendering here. So allegedly, Chamberlain's the first union guy to hear that Lee's gonna surrender. So that's that's the story. Mm-hmm. He's only get selected to join that entourage uh, of for that formal surrender and he's the one who pissed off a lot of the union guys because he's the one who wanted to do that salute yeah. to the confederates and they mm-hmm. did it. And it tick, ticked off a lot of them. But he, was, he obviously became very, very popular. Like I said, he was governor of Maine. He he was elected with like 73% of the vote in Maine one year. He was elected to four consecutive one-year terms. It was a one-year deal. He eventually leaves, like I said, becomes president of Bowdoin. But that injury, like I said, does catch up with him. He dies in Portland in 1914. I think he's around 85, right around there. What was interesting about this is... At his bedside when he dies is a guy named Doctor Abner Shaw. Mm-hmm. He's the same doctor who 50 years before was the one who stuck the ramrod in. So he um, he was there. He was there for the rest of it. But but what's but he gets the credit. But he also does a lot. I will say when you look at the big picture, he does do a lot more than Tilda does. does. There's no question. Yep. But when you're focusing on just Gettysburg, I think his Gettysburg job is a little bit overrated. Yep. I agree. like I said. He, yep. You know, 30% casualties versus 81 doesn't take away I from agree. Chamberlain. No, but I think you got to look at the picture, and sometimes you got to realize you can give credit to the people.
0: That's exactly. Right. Yeah, like you're not demoting, you're you're not downplaying what Chamberlain does by saying that. You're just saying like, look, there's other stuff that's going on. You know, there's this guy here, eighty percent casualties. Like Tilda needs to be remembered just as much as Chamberlain does for. For what he's doing at Gettysburg, when you're looking, when you're zero, when you're zeroing in at something like that, you know. But big picture, yeah, Chamberlain does more than Tilden does in the Civil War. But small picture, Gettysburg definitely, you know, Tilden needs to be remembered for for his actions and talked about. You know, I think just as
1: much as Chamberlain does, for sure. Yes, obviously he obviously does. Nothing against nothing against Chamberlain. He's yep. great at what he did. But I think more people need to take more of a worldly approach, is obviously. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree. And, and I will, and I will say, Gettysburg, sixteen. Is greater than 20 i would like agree I with you with, well so. that's
0: why i had that beer tonight
1: there you go there you go I make mean, you go one more you want to talk about
0: yeah well i got well there's two more guys here but they're tied into the same thing the same battle battle of chickamauga i'm going to talk about robert minty and john wilder and their actions at chickamauga managed to hold the confederates back and they allowed for rosecrans to rally all the troops back at, at chattanooga now ultimately Chickamauga is going to be... It's a defeat for the Union, but... At the same time, like Rosecrans is the one sitting at Chattanooga at the end of the day. So really, you know, and we all know what happens with the battles for Chattanooga. He ends up taking the city, like they end up taking the city back. So the one thing about these two guys, so Minty and Wilder, you know, mounted infantry and cavalry here and very similar. The the two I thought of were Buford and Sheridan. Buford and Sheridan, everybody knows who they are, especially Sheridan, especially Buford for his actions at Gettysburg. And the actions of Minty and Wilder here at Chickamauga are very similar to what Buford Buford does at Gettysburg with delay tactics with being able to hold them back um, with less numbers you know Minty and Wilder are very outnumbered just the way Buford was but the thing is is like everybody knows who Buford and Sheridan is I don't think as many people know who Minty and Wilder are and what they did not just at Chickamauga but in their careers in the Civil War which are both worth studying and there's a really good book about it called Holding the Line at the River of Death um, it's by Eric J. Wittenberg excellent book It's really good. I'm listening to the audio version of it for the second time, actually. It's very, very good. They deserve to be talked about in the same way that Tilden does, um, in the same way that Kimball does, like these other guys we've talked about. So neither Minty nor Wilder, neither of them attend West Point. So none of the guys I picked, Kimball doesn't attend West Point. None of them attend West Point. They're not professional soldiers. Uh, Not like uh, Buford and Sheridan are. Mm -hmm. So we'll begin with Minty. So Minty is born in 1831 in Westport County, Mayo, Ireland. So we have another Irish guy here. So shout out to our two Irish listeners, uh, Colin and Ryan. There you go. There's our Irish reference for this episode. Minty does not smoke or drink, but apparently he had other vices, a lot like Kilpatrick, mainly the Bang Barn, with one person in particular, which I will get to in a few minutes. So when he's younger, his dad is part of the British Army. His dad actually is the commander of this um, West India regiment that they're all black troops, but they're commanded by, you know, like obviously Minty's dad is white, commanded by a white guy, and they travel all over the place. So Minty and his family get to do that because of his father's position in the British military. So they're in the Caribbean, Africa, They eventually settle in Jamaica, where unfortunately Minty's father will die of yellow fever in 1848. Eventually, Robert moves to Ontario, Canada, and he settles in London, which is actually about an hour from where I live. And it's there that he meets his wife, Grace, marries her in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, Ontario, which I have driven past many times on my travels to the city, had no idea that's where... Robert Minty was married. This guy from the Civil War works for the Ra- Great Western Railroad, which is actually a railway that ran very near my hometown of Goderich. And railroads are going to define the rest of his life. That's where he's going to work when he's not in the army. So as I said, he marries Grace Ann Abbott, London, Ontario. In late 1858, they moved to Detroit, Michigan, because he gets a position with the Detroit and Milwaukee Railway. And at the outbreak of the Civil War, he volunteers and is immediately appointed a major in the 2nd Michigan Cavalry. And shortly after this, he becomes a lieutenant in the 3rd Michigan Cavalry, and he will spend most of the fall and winter training them. They see action at Corinth, during which Minty will lead a saber charge. And this is what defines him for the rest of the Civil War. This is his trademark, his saber brigade. They make saber charges. And that's something that at the time, cavalry are trying to get away from doing that in the in the Civil War. He's the one that is like, no, this is going to become our trademark, and it makes them more like mounted infantry. So, um, in July 1862, he's promoted to full colonel, um, given command of the Fourth Michigan. Fourth Michigan has been mentioned in one of our episodes recently to do with Jeff Davis. The people of Michigan actually um, they give money for them to get the Colt revolving rifles, which have a high rate of fire. So that's what these guys are carrying. So in December of 1862, he's given command of a cavalry brigade that would be made up of the 4th Michigan, the 7th Pennsylvania, the 4th US Cavalry, and the Chicago Board of Trade Battery. He's going to fight at Stones River, where he's going to press the Confederate retreat in which he does a saber uh, charge, uh, led by the 4th U.S. and the 7th uh, Pennsylvania. And in January 1863, he's going to attack some Confederate cavalry units. He's going to capture 130 of them, including some officers from Nathan Bedford Forrest, who he's going to come up against Nathan Bedford Forrest, and Joe Wheeler's involved in this too. rest the Civil War, the two of them are going to come up against each other constantly. So it's at this time, his brigade eventually becomes known as the Saber Brigade because of how they're attacking. They've made this kind of their trademark thing. And that's another thing that's going to play into, like, we'll see with Wilder that there's something very similar that happens to his brigade. So I'm not going to lie to you. some a Saber in your hand, you feel powerful. Oh, that. I know. I know. Why do you think I picked Minty? <laughs> that's one of the reasons.
1: I ran across that field. You I know. Something.
0: Well, every time I saw it, I'm like, oh, like Minty. Um, hopefully not in other ways, though. <laughs> so when it got out into the press about the saber brigade apparently bragg sends rosecrans a message protesting that there's some federal cavalry that are sharpening their sabers and bragg tells rosecrans this is fucking barbarous could could you not minty goes to rosecrans and rosecrans is like are you doing this and minty's like well yeah of course i am and Rosecrans apparently told him, such troopers as yours should have anything they want. Sharpen every saber you have. Ooh, <laughs> I agree <Like right> there. <laughs> so July of 1863, Tellahoma campaign's happening. He manages to um, get Wheeler's cavalry, route them. Many drowned, unfortunately, as they tried to escape over the Duck River. Wheeler himself barely escapes. And that brings us to the Battle of Chickamauga on September the 18th, which is in my books, the first day of the battle. Some say it's a, just a two-day battle, but no, mm-hmm. I think it starts on September the 18th, in my opinion. Minty and his brigade are camped near Reed's Bridge on Chickamauga Creek. He's got around a thousand men and the rebels are approaching. So Minty has sent several messages back saying like reinforcements are arriving like I need help and they're telling him no basically they're telling like Minty's being told what Appler was told at, at Shiloh they're not there but Minty is just like fuck that shit I'm gonna do my own thing and it's a good thing he does he prepares to fight so he's gonna be confronted by 5,000 cavalry that bero- belong to our friend Bushrod Johnson and in, in the early morning hours of September the 18th Minty's men during this time they are defending Reedsbridge They're going to dismount, fire at Johnson's men, get back on their horses, ride further back, dismount, and do the same thing. In doing that, they are going to delay Johnson's men because they're marching and then they have to get into a battle line to shoot. As they're doing that, they're being shot at by Minty's men. And then Minty's men just get back on their fucking horses and they ride away. And then Johnson's men have to get back in and march again. So it's delay, delay, delay. And Minty manages to to delay them until to the point late in the day where Johnson is like, fuck this. It's too late to do anything else. Minty does end up having to retreat, but that's at four o'clock. And four o'clock in September, it's getting a little bit too dark to fight. He manages to delay Johnson long enough that Bragg's plan is not unfolding how he wanted it to at this point. And Wilder does actually send him reinforcements of a thousand men to help him out. So after the Civil War, he fights with George Crook has a fight with him um he claims that minty failed to carry out orders and minty's like fuck that i never got orders minty's relieved of those charges in the atlanta campaign and this is where kilpatrick comes back into it he's part of a famous raid with the goal of capturing the railway at jonesboro and destroying as much of it as possible this happens um because minty's brigade makes the assault that secures it but they end up getting surrounded by confederates on their way out so kilpatrick what does he do he orders a charge by the Sabre Brigade. And Minty leads it. They break through the Confederates and they go back to Atlanta. He's commanding a raid in Selma, Alabama near the end of the Civil War. And his troops in the 4th Michigan are involved in the capture of Jeff Davis. Minty will not actually be there for that capture, but his former command, the 4th Michigan, is there for it. Peter Cousins, a Civil War historian said that Minty was as fine a cavalry officer as the Union, as the Army of the Cumberland produced. Minty's post-war life, though, is a little bit like Dallas, very much. So he returns to Michigan to his wife and his four children. One of the children unfortunately passes away. Minty and his wife start drifting apart. So Minty starts having to travel for work and he ends up saying to his wife, you know, I got to live in Albany, New York for most of the time and she's okay with that. Well, there's Grace, his wife, her younger sister, Laura, Minty's sister-in-law is living with them. She's nine years younger than Minty. All of a sudden, she's got a job as a governess, she says, in Indiana. Nope, she moves to Albany, New York and she's shacking up with Minty and shit happens At the bang barn where they're shacking up and she gets pregnant. So she has a son and he unfortunately ends up passing away. But she gets pregnant again soon after. The sister's name is Laura. She's another baby, which will be Minty's ninth child. So Minty at this point ends up losing his job. He's got an official family, but he's also got a secret family. And now he's unemployed. And then Laura gives birth to twins, who's his wife's sister and now his mistress. So he gets a railway job in Florida He moves there with Laura. His wife has zero clue as to what's going on. And he eventually admits everything to Grace after his boss at the railway finds out in Florida. And he basically says, you have to divorce her or you're losing your job. So Minty goes to her and says, this is what I've been doing. I've been screwing around with your sister and we have kids together. Can you please give me a divorce? And she's like, fuck that. I'm not. Nope. So she says, no, sorry, Bob to that which is basically the opposite to what happens to Burnside at the altar, does not divorce him. So Minty loses his job. He does eventually marry Laura, but never officially gets divorced from his first wife, Grace. And he eventually moves to Utah with with Laura. In 1895, he does return to Chickamauga with some of the members of the Sabre Brigade, where he's going to deliver the keynote speech at the dedication ceremony for the monument to the 4th Michigan Cavalry, And he says, whether history does us justice or not, we have the proud and gratifying knowledge that By the performance of her whole duty in in the hour of danger and necessity, we save the army of the Cumberland from terrible disaster, if not from annihilation. It's a little overdramatic, but I do agree with, I do in some ways agree with him here. And we're going to see that more when I talk about Wilder, that what these two did here could very well have saved the army of the Cumberland you know, with their delaying tactics, which are very similar to Buford's forcing Bragg to basically change his battle plans and all that. But he goes there to give this speech, you know, and he knows full well, like Minty, Minty's a little bit like Chamberlain in that regard. He liked himself some Minty. Mm-hmm. Basically, yeah, he's very be. much like that. He's going to pass away in 1906, and he's actually buried in Ogden, Utah, at the exact same cemetery as Nathan Kimball.
1: And well, that's why he went to Utah. They wanted that second wife. Yeah. That's why he did it. Exactly. He, he, he
0: wasn't living. No, in he Utah, did. Though
1: he he wants, to be, wants to be one of those polygamists out there. I know. God. Um, makes you wonder. Makes you wonder what's you know what's going on with old Nathan you know, Kimball
0: kimball's pretty tame he's a tame guy (laughs) compared to
1: to he he only got only at four wives
0: so that is the life of robert minty at um and he's the one of the ones i wanted to talk about in reference to the battle of chickamauga the other one that goes hand in hand with him at this battle who's his exact opposite basically when it comes to his life is john t wilder now john t wilder like minty has a very distinguished career in the civil war that does not get talked about very much not like sheridan and buford His private life, unlike Minty, is very, very tame. He's born in 1830 in New York. His ancestors, um, like his grandfather's, fought in the Revolutionary War. His father fights in the War of 1812. At 19, he voluntarily moves to Columbus, Ohio. But it's actually a good thing he did that because he finds employment at a mill. And from there, he you know, discovers that this is his true calling, believe it or not, he's quite successful at doing this. So eventually, he moves to Indiana, he marries Martha Jane Stewart, and he raises a large family, he establishes a foundry that becomes very successful. And he invents different hydraulic machines, which he gets patents for and all that. And he becomes a nationally renowned expert in the area of hydraulics doesn't sound too exciting. But still, like he's he's quite well known. Oh, in no. his field. <laughs>
1: Nobody be mar- married Martha Stewart though, so obviously he's the famous. Stewart,
0: that's true. <laughs> right? I bet their house looked really nice.
1: Probably well, good recipes. But probably, yeah, you know? she's probably a really truck. good cook
0: too. <laughs> All
1: those cavalry guys used to come over there for food.
0: In the Civil War, he enlists as a private in the First Indiana Battery and was quickly elected captain. Much like Kimball, that's what happens to him too. And he's eventually con- commissioned lieutenant colonel of the Seventeenth Indiana. Infantry. He fights at Shiloh and after this he's given brigade command. He's at a place called Munfordville, Kentucky, where he's commanding a garrison with less than 2,000 men, and Braxton Bragg is headed right for him. September 13th, 1862, Chalmers demands that Wilder surrenders, to which Wilder responds, eh, I think I'm going to fucking fight it out for a while. Sorry, dude. Whatever, I'm going to fight. His men manage to hold for a while and they are trying to hold a bridge which is so similar to what he's going to be doing at Chickamauga in September of 1863, almost a year, like just over a year later. His men eventually have to, you know, stop fighting, and Wilder is taken behind enemy lines to where he meets Simon Bolivar Buckner. Buckner lets him see the rebel positions to which Wilder says, well, it seems to me that I ought to surrender. And he does, and he ends up spending two months in a Confederate prison. He's released, and at this, after he's released... He decides to buy, he wants to outfit all his troops with Spencer repeaters and the government's not on board with this. So Wilder goes to some banks in Indiana, secures the loans and his men are going to pay back the price of these these rifles with their pay but then the government gets wind pretty quickly about how amazing these rifles are and they foot the bill for them so the men don't have to pay for them because of this they become part of many um, important campaigns and they would go on detached missions because he's basically made them mounted infantry because while he's securing these rifles in indiana getting these loans his men are out getting horses in tennessee to make themselves into mounted infantry during tallahoma campaign He drives the rebels from Hoover's Gap, which is a key victory for Rosecrans in this campaign. And this is where they earn the name Wilder's Lightning Brigade. So just like Minty's Saber Brigade, you have Wilder's Lightning Brigade. With the assistance of Thomas J. Wood, in late in early September, late August, eighteen sixty-three, he captures the city of Chattanooga. And he does that by doing like they're firing rounds at the city. They're making it seem like there's a bunch of men there. They're basically doing the delay thing while Rosecrans goes around them, and it works. The rebels leave Chattanooga. But plus,
1: the Sabers and the Lightning was like he man. They were just exactly power they're of grace
0: Power That's of grace call right (laughs) at chickamauga much like minty wilder's going to use delay tactics to hold off the rebels but he does a couple other cool things here too so he is going to be protecting alexander's bridge and it's here he's going to fight against alexander walthall who is one of the guys he had to surrender to (laughs) almost a year before and now he's about to give the huge fuck you to walthall so what does he do um he manages to firing and firing upon walthall's men until walthall's finally like fuck this i've had enough but they can't cross the bridge Because Wilder's men have ripped, went and ripped up all the flooring from the bridge and they've made themselves a little bit of a fort right where the rebels need to cross. And anywhere else along Chickamauga Creek in that vic- in that area is terrible to cross. They're forced to go downstream a little bit and cross elsewhere. September 19th, Wilder's going to launch a counterattack through the Bloody Pond. His career does not go on in the Civil War uh, like Minty's does. He has to resign his commission in October 1864 due to health problems. Post-Civil War, he actually moves to the city of Chattanooga, where he's going to become mayor in 1871. He dies in Jacksonville, Florida in 1917. And he's buried in the city of Chattanooga. But the reason I wanted to talk about these two is because unlike Buford and Sheridan, who get a lot of recognition, and they deserve it, they do. But so do Walter and Minty. Because what they do here, and I think, you know, Minty sums it up pretty well in that speech he gives, they do in some ways save the army of the Cumberland in this way. Because what they do, delay tactics, they delay Bragg's attack to the point where he's got a change what he wants to do but they also allow Rosecrans to get back into the city of Chattanooga because Rosecrans has his army spread so far apart. Time is everything and delaying running down the clock is what is going to matter here and what Walter and Minty do allow Rosecrans to get back. Bragg can't do the flank attack that he wants to on the 18th and he's got to go back and regroup and it changes the game and yes Chattanooga ends up being a defeat for the Union but as we see at the end of the day, who is sitting in the city, but William Rosecrans and those well, two, you know, those two, you know, they do like they're badasses and they're in the media just as much as I think Sheridan is. Um, Minty especially was more, I think the media guy than Wilder, but they are two men that definitely deserve to be talked about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, just, and for every, for all, you know, we've mentioned six guys tonight for this, this thousands upon thousands that we, that we, that we didn't. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the war is full of these people and, and, You know, just like anything else, some people get more credit than others. But I think it's important to look at these people. I know Chamberlain gets a lot. I just wanted to put him in as a contrast to Tilden. But, but I think it's a good understanding of every one of these guys fought for the union. They fought for um, what they felt, whatever they felt in, uh, whether you know patriotism, anti-slavery, whatever was going to do. They were they were going to do it. But but it doesn't mean they fought any less than the other guys. It just means that yep. for whatever reason, history shines on other people more than anything else. Like anything else in life, it's just the way it is. Yeah. But I think I think it's a good study. I think it's, you know, looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly is, is more of a detailed version of what some of these guys are. And this is definitely a little different podcast than we usually do. Yeah. But I think it's important to understand some of the psychology behind these guys and to see what motivates these guys. The Kilpatrick's are motivated, by you know, he's he's motivated by you know political success down the road. Yeah. Chamberlain, who knows? I mean, in, tilden it seems to be a regular guy you know just wants to fight and go back home and call it a day you know minty and wilder have different different things as well but i think it's important to look at the overall big picture that every one of these people who fought in this war they're all individuals they're all different yeah they all fought for different reasons some cared about the publicity some didn't but they all fought they all fought hard i think it's important for people to realize that yeah i agree so what so what's next
0: so next we are getting back into part two of vicksburg which we're going to do a part three as well so that's going to be next week we're going to be doing a usual facebook live on saturday so if you're listening to this and it's before 10 o'clock on a saturday we hope you will join us Because we'll be doing Mm -hmm. our Facebook Live. And yeah, and we have our book club coming up at the end of this month as well, which we are reading Through the Heart of Dixie by Dr. Anne Sarah Rubin. So there's some good discussion that has started going on on our website forum over that. So head on over there to our website, civilwarbreakfastclub.com. You can participate in our forum for free. Uh, Always lots of good discussion on there. Yeah, that's what we were up to. Vicksburg, and then we will be getting into... We will be getting into the Gettysburg campaign by talking about Winchester
1: summer ca- summer campaign season. So, yep. all right, Mary, we'll call tonight. Get ready to call today. So, again, yep. everybody, thanks for listening to this extra long edition. Mm-hmm. But then again, we didn't have anyone last week, so there yep. you go. Now so we There you go.
0: This it. is your bonus.
1: Exactly. So off we go. So Mary, again, like I say many many times, the pleasure of course is always yours, and we are looking forward to catching up with the live. Looking forward to catching up. Heading into Vicksburg part 2 next week and we will head off to do some big and exciting things down the road going forward and we'll call it a day. Any final words from you?
0: No. Thank you for being the awesome civil war nerd you are. And for all our listeners for these 41 episodes for like supporting us.
1: 41. How about that? Anyway, Mary, good night. We will look forward to talking to you soon. Everybody else. Thanks for listening. And we will see you as I always say on the other side. See y'all later. Peace. Bye.